Africa Calling, a bi-monthly podcast with sound-rich reports from our correspondents on the continent. African voices reporting on African stories produced by Radio France International. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Africa Calling Podcast on October 1st, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We have a number of stories from the African continent this week, including a report from Cameroon on Hollywood, the country's up-and-coming film industry that has caught the eye of international streaming companies. Plus, from logistics to climate change, we'll take a look at the challenges fishermen face in Kalemi, in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And in Kenya, our correspondent goes to the border of Uganda to find out about how introducing one small change in newborn care can make a big difference in lowering infant mortality. And finally, don't forget our special song at the end. Africa Calling. In Cameroon, the major motion picture industry, sometimes referred to as Hollywood, is waking from years of slumber. Movies coming from the small Anglophone population, which makes up 20% of the country, has moved into the highest echelons of film distribution this year. With already four films acquired by giant movie streaming platform Netflix, the industry has moved from unnoticed to getting positive international attention. Cynthia Nguemo, Africa Calling correspondent in Douala, covered the recent evolution of the Cameroon film industry and has more. Anthony or Nabila? Both of them open me up to agony. God! Laughlin! What has come over you? Where is this coming from? Just save me the pain of seeing her! The film industry in Cameroon, sometimes called Hollywood, in its many decades of existence, has mostly gone unnoticed, both home and abroad. But that is changing today with the new generation of filmmakers. The industry is living a sort of breakthrough it has been longing for, winning local and overseas markets. 2021 has thus far been a record-breaking year for this film sector. Therapy, a film about a couple struggling to save their broken marriage, made history in March as the very first from the country to be hosted by Netflix, today's leading movie streaming platform, and has opened the way for three others. That's uh, the trophy for best short film at Fespaco. Uh, and then uh, there you have uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Pule's award for best actor, Camille. That's Akbar Gilbert, a board pointing to trophies from prestigious awards displayed on a cupboard in his movie studio in Boya, the capital of Cameroon's southwest region. He's a renowned Cameroonian film producer and founder of the Cameroon International Film Festival. Gilbert says locally made films thriving in international markets are a win for the industry. He says the ride has certainly been a tough one from government and administrative bottlenecks to the country's bilingual nature and subsequent differences between Anglophone and Francophone audiovisual laws, as he explains. It was a long fight to get Amazon to actually start hosting Cameroonian films. 
based on the fact that Cameroon is highly francophonized and all the laws that protect audiovisual in Cameroon are francophone inclined, protected by francophone and francophonie structures. And we put a claim in, at the Netflix office in Los Angeles that there are 4 million Cameroonians, at least, in America. And then there are more than 3 million Cameroonians in Europe. There are more than 3 million Cameroonians um, within Africa who can access Netflix. So why don't you give us a try? And Netflix decided to do that. One of Anglophone Cameroon's leading men, actor, Epule Jeffrey, agrees that it's a big win for Cameroon. He says the Netflix contract has done more than just proven their worth to the foreign markets, but also to their fellow citizens, many of whom had little faith in the domestic film sector. Netflix is another platform, uh, one of the biggest at the moment. And for us to be able to get Cameroonian films on that platform has a multiple multiplier effect that is just really exponential for the good of film business because other than just solving the problem of you know selling those films on that platform we're actually beginning to show Cameroonians that it is very good it is viable to invest in film business I trust you I know she will be well <laughs> Like the Agbo Gilbert produced FAR, positive international attention, especially beyond Africa, is mostly enjoyed by the Anglophone film sector. French-language Cameroonian movies have more of an audience in big Francophone cities like Douala, where they feature in cinemas. Pierre Junior Ebolo is manager of Eden Cinema, one of Douala's largest and most popular movie theatres. He says despite his willingness to promote local francophone films, they are too expensive for most theatre-goers. Cameroonian cinemas charge audiences the price that distributors set and many are higher than big blockbusters. They need to understand that it's not putting the price at 20, 15 and 10,000 francs that would make people respect their work. No, we have films with even higher paid actors and we play them for 1,500 francs. So why do they think it's okay to put their films at such a price and sell to few people in a movie hall of 800 or 900 seats? It's not okay. Ebolo is referring to film distributors adding that poor distribution policies in place limit his cinema hall to playing just two Cameroonian films a month. He believes it also discourages domestic consumption of homemade films. I play Cameroonian films once they're made available to me. The frequency depends on the availability. For instance, I signed a contract with a distribution company where I'm supposed to play between one and two films a week, but today I've only five in total. I've requested for more, but to no avail. This organization is part of the problem. He says the limited availability of Cameroonian films at his theater is because his distributors fail to supply the films at the expected frequency. With the industry's ascension to online platforms like Amazon and Netflix, 
Notably for the Anglophone part of the industry, it definitely has become more available and competitive than ever before, says Epule Jeffrey, who is the lead character in Breach of Trust. So what are we going to do now? It's obvious you've never known anything. You're so incompetent and I'm beginning not to trust you. Matter of fact, I'm going to do this thing my way. Cameroon can begin to compete with other film industries almost on an equal level. We have the disadvantage of not having or not being able to produce as many films as maybe um, the Nollywood or South Africa film industries. But you know, with time and especially with things like this, people will begin to trust and it's easier for us to convince investors. However, film producer Gilbert says the sky is the limit and he, as well as his fellow movie makers, wish to see the industry grow even more. Uh, our target does not limit us to Amazon. Our target does not limit us to Netflix. Our target does not limit us to all these great platforms. Our target is to actually get our films on Broadways, get our films on, on uh, blockbusters, American blockbusters, and get our films to actually win Oscars, why not? With the growing collaboration with neighboring Nigeria's Nollywood actors and hopefully with more government support, the resilient Cameroon film industry, Hollywood, can, in the near future, be counted amongst the biggest in Africa and even beyond. I am Cynthia Nguemo in Douala, Cameroon, reporting for RFI's Africa Calling. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the town of Kalemi, on the banks of Lake Tanganyika, the longest freshwater lake in the world, fishing and anything related to fishing is the primary livelihood of the residents there. However, artisanal fishing is the name of the game. There's no commercial fishing activities in what was once a major fishing hub. I went to Kalemi to speak to fishermen, fish sellers, and fishing experts to find out more. It's nearly nighttime here in Kalemi, a small town in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo nestled in a crescent around Lake Tanganyika. The lake, the second oldest and second deepest in the world, shares a border with neighboring Burundi, Zambia, and Tanzania. It's a clear evening as fishermen prepare for a long night of fishing. Fishing is the main industry involving a large part of the population, but unfortunately, there are no commercial ventures here in a lake teeming with fish. Fishermen Shaggy, Simon, Jean-Michel are working in the dark near their two dugout canoes, preparing their nets to go out and catch daga, or minnows, a staple part of the diet here, and mikibuka, a larger fish. Fisherman Shaggy describes what they do. We don't use boats, but these little canoes, nets and lights with a battery, we want the fish to follow the light so we can catch them. There are two types of canoes, the big one and the little one. From the big one, we put the nets in the water and then turn on the light. The fish go into the net. It's dangerous going out at night on the lake, so the three fishermen give me a demonstration on the safety of the sand and how they position the boats and use their nets in the water. 
Shaggy is on one dugout canoe with Simon, while Jean-Michel is precariously perched and barefoot on the edge of the other as they shout commands and pull the net back and forth. It's a lot of effort to fish all night and return in the morning, especially when fishermen work and sell only to the local population. It wasn't always that way, says Shaggy's colleague, Jean-Michel. A long time ago, there were Greeks who did commercial fishing, and they had the equipment needed to fish. Now, we use very basic equipment. And when we can get a little, we eat and feed our families. Calamie's beautiful crescent-shaped bay disguises its major concerns. The town has an underused port and a dilapidated train line from colonial times, says Guy Bungobechi, a fisheries expert and consultant with the Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO, here in Calamie. Kalemi is very cut off. The roads are in a horrible state, so you can't get to other towns. The train is also not in a good state, and they no longer run with the frequency that they used to. At one time, Kalemi regularly sent provisions to Lubumbashi. He's speaking of the Congo's third largest city, a major mining area 900 kilometers south of Kalemi. Although fish from Lake Tanganyika is prized within the DRC, poor infrastructure and supply issues has thwarted setting up viable fishing businesses here. As the fisherman said earlier, equipment such as nets are at a premium. In the Dav neighborhood of Kalemi, Emmanuel Monziro, president of Kopemu, one of a number of fishing cooperatives here in Kalemi, explains why this is the case. Le, le... We also have a problem with the price of equipment that we buy. You have to go to Tanzania and pay the visa, so the cost of material is really expensive here in Kalimi. You have to go to Tanzania because everything here is so expensive. There's also the customs and the tax for the materials we buy. It's enormous. The tax we have to pay here is really high. And of course, you have to factor in the long-lasting effects of two wars that were fought in and around Calamie less than 25 years ago. Fishermen fled, others who stayed lost their boats, their equipment, and for some, even their lives. The fishing community has returned, but the lack of equipment and at times expertise has hampered progress, not to mention lack of stable electricity and infrastructure. No cold storage in town also prevents fishermen from keeping their catch fresh or even freezing their fish. Simon Gachi is a pastor and the president of Copacamo Fishing Cooperative. He's a fisherman and the son of a fisherman. He says it's a big problem. The primary problem here is that the fishermen don't have any help. We can catch a lot of fish, but it goes bad because we have no way to store it. We don't have cold storage, so we have to sell it at very low prices, which doesn't cover anything really, considering the work that goes into it. Fishing expert Bungo Bechi agrees. 
The fishermen don't know where to store their fish, so this doesn't allow for the fishermen to treat or to store a big quantity of fish, and it doesn't permit them to assure the good quality of fish at the end of the day. So here we're losing a very important quality to the level of 60 to 65 percent in the sector, but we also have a loss of very important commercial value. When everyone leaves with good fish and when the market is saturated, they don't know what to do with the fish, and they sell them for a loss. Here at the Port Fish Market, women sit in the sun with baskets of fish they have bought from the fishermen. Many sell minnows, the most popular. Merve Fataki is a well-dressed fish seller who has a number of baskets of various fish. Some are dried, others salted or smoked. She explains the process. To prepare the minnows for drying on pebbles, it takes three days. For smoked fish, it takes two days, and for the salted fish, four days. If the minnows are already dry, they will keep up to three months. If the minnows are coming direct from the boat, then we bury them underground. For the salted fish, we cut them and then put them in salt and put them in the ground. Some of the fish are buried because of lack of cold storage, so that they can be dug up and sold later. While this seems like a solution in a very hot climate, it can create a number of health problems, according to fish expert Bungo Becci. Eating decomposing fish, which is not quite rotten but has lost its good quality, can also lead to health problems. By eating fish that is not well stored, one is exposed to a number of illnesses. It could be things such as infections or food poisoning. It's so common here. We were speaking at a conference and the doctors who were there confirmed this problem. And paradoxically, this happens during the abundant period. And we found this in fishermen's families as the best part of the catch is for sale, but also during the lower rate of catch too. It's a real problem here. The lake is a little more agitated in the afternoon. However, it's not as bad as it was earlier this year, in April, when the waters of Lake Tanganyika rose after heavy rains and destroyed the shore, enlarging the lake. Eleven people died in Calami and some 44,000 were displaced. As if poor infrastructure and lack of equipment were not enough of a test for the hardiest Calami residents, Climate change has created yet another obstacle. Gachi, the president of Copacamo Fishing Cooperative, says that in his neighborhood, full of his colleagues, people were hit hard by the rising lake waters. In April, there was flooding and houses were destroyed here. Now there are a number of families who live in a plastic sheets or those who are totally homeless and live outside. We are asking the government to give us plastic sheeting and other things to help the people here. Back in the Dav neighborhood, where Kopemu president Mwenziro has his offices, the rising waters washed away most of his headquarters. He explains. The water was more than 500 meters from our office. But as the water rose, our office was totally destroyed. The office is about 18 metres long. We had one little wall that was here that we built, but it's already gone. And the bathrooms, they're gone too. Truly, it's a shame. It's not only in Kalemi or Congo. It's all the countries that are around Lake Tanganyika. They talk about rising waters in Burundi, in Tanzania, even in Zambia. It's a real catastrophe. There are homes that are gone. Our neighbourhood here risks disappearing. 
There are streets that have been attacked by the waters of the lake and it seems that we are helpless to fight against the water. Climate change has even affected the fish sellers. Back at the port market, fish seller Merve Fataki used to have a stall in a covered market 20 meters away from where she is standing now. But the flooding destroyed the cement structure. It lies partially in the lake nearby. Here's Fataki. If we have rain, we suffer a lot. And if we have the sun, we also suffer. We sell here, but it is difficult. We're not comfortable. We want them to create a market for us. Residents can see the results this year, but according to the FAO's Bungobechi, the waters have been rising for the past 10 years. And from his own observation, the lake has risen significantly between 2018 and 2020. And unfortunately, nothing is being done about it, he says. What's the consequence? It's that the fishermen lose their homes. They also lost a space to dry their fish. And obviously, they've lost a bunch of schools, a health centre. The loss to the fishing community has had a very big impact. If the fishermen continue to lose their homes, as some already have, this could affect Kalemi's ability to feed itself, he says. Bungobechi adds that if the fishing industry could be commercialized, it could greatly improve the health and the lives of Kalemi's residents. That's part of his project working with 3,000 fishermen here, in and around Kalemi. Gaining the estimated loss of revenue could make a difference, he says. What we're trying to do, because the project isn't finished yet, is to improve the after-catch preservation of fish. I believe it's the biggest problem here. It's even more important than overfishing and illegal fishing. The first thing we need to do is to make sure that they can take care of fish after they've been caught. The loss is enormous, and we estimated that in the Colibondo neighborhood alone, there's a million-dollar loss. While the fishermen are waiting to get improved access to equipment, better infrastructure, and measures put in place against climate change, they head out for another long night on Lake Tanganyika in the hopes of being able to feed their family. Special thanks to Eunice Ayub on this report. Find us on your favorite podcast platform app, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. In Kenya, for many years, communities in Western Kenya and its environs have been using traditional ways of umbilical cord care for newborn babies. Ash, cow dung, mud, and even soot would be applied on the cord, which could cause fatal infections. However, communities are now embracing the new method of using chlorhexidine jelly, or CHX, on newborns. This new method helps the umbilical cord drop in less than five days and protects the baby from infections. Correspondent Victor Maturi has more from Busia County in western Kenya. This sounds of birds welcomes us to Bunand village in Busia County, near the border of Kenya and Uganda. Here, the community is embracing the new method of cord care using chloxidine jelly for the newborn babies. Chloxidine is an antiseptic jelly applied on the newborn umbilical cord to prevent sepsis, which is one of the leading causes of neonatal death in Kenya and East Africa at large. 
Beatles Akuko is a mother of seven children and she has used this method for her latest child. Beatrice says she has been using the traditional method for her last six children and it took long for the umbilical cord to heal. For my first six children, I used dust to apply to the umbilical cord because that's what I was shown by my grandmother. I used it for two weeks and it wasn't healing. I started using powder and again it wasn't healing quickly like the current chlorhexidine jelly that I'm using. I was given this jelly at the hospital and the doctor advised me to apply it after washing my baby. I used it for three days and after one week, the cord was healed. Few meters from Beatrice's homestead, Jacqueline Cherotich, a mother of four children, is one of the many women who have started embracing the new method of umbilical cord care. She says it took just three days for her last two children to heal. I used to deliver at home, and my grandmother would use a piece of cloth to tie the stump of umbilical cord of my babies. It took a long time for the cords to heal, and she would tell me to apply fine and soft mud to soothe it. The umbilical cord took two weeks to heal. I started using the modern method for my third child after delivering at Nanjina Dispensary. After one week, the cord was fine. The modern method is working well for me. Thousands of indigenous communities in western Kenya and its environs still practice their tradition during delivery, such as applying cow dung on the umbilical cord, soil, lizard droppings, herbs, comestic powder, or sometimes tying a piece of cloth around the umbilical cord. Margaret Nabuira Makoha is one of few remaining midwives in this village of Bunandi, explains. We used to tie the baby's umbilical cord three times using a piece of cloth to prevent blood coming out. Then we would wash the cord with salt water until it falls off. My colleagues were using soot and cow dung, but we realized children could develop problems, so we continued using salt water for a long time. But nowadays things are okay. We've got hospitals around. During our times, there weren't any hospitals. We'd have to walk hundreds of kilometers to Busia or Kisumu towns for someone to get medical services because there were no vehicles. Locals say the lack of hospitals is the primary reason many women continue embracing traditional ways of cord care in western Kenya. However, with the help of community health workers, residents in this area are now receiving cord care and other medical services in their homes. Rosalyn Anyango-Makoa, a community health volunteer in the larger Munandi village, has been training women on how to use chlorhexidine jelly on their newborn babies at home. Previously, women used traditional medicine to heal the umbilical cord because culture and religion was forbidding them to use other methods. But now the world's changed. Nowadays, we even call to meet the women at schools to educate and train them in the new ways of cord care. My appeal to women, I urge them to deliver at hospital. The days of delivering at home are over. At the Tesso North Sub-County Hospital in the outskirts of Busia County, nurses are busy attending to the newborn babies in one of the wards. 
they are applying collected in jelly on the baby's umbilical cords. Judith Amoit, a mother of four children, just gave birth one day ago. She says it is the first time she is delivering in hospital. For my first three children, I used ash from the kitchen to apply to the umbilical cords, and it used to take one week for the cord to drop. Now I want to compare which method works best for me. If it's the chlorhexidine jelly, that's what I'll be using. But if the traditional one is better, then I'll stick to it. During pregnancy, the umbilical cord supplies nutrients and oxygen to the developing baby. After birth, the umbilical cord is no longer needed, so it is clamped and snipped. This leaves behind a short stamp. The baby's umbilical cord stamp then dries out and eventually falls off. Tezra Okal is a nursing officer in charge of maternity wing here at Teso North Subcounty Hospital. She tells us about the process of applying cloxidine jelly on baby's umbilical cords. So immediately the baby is born, we apply CHX in the delivery room. So we apply the CHX from the, the root of the cord and, and the part that we've cut on top of the cord. So we apply once in a day up to when the cord drops or for at least seven days. But in most cases the cord drops below seven days. Within the first week, the cord is dropped. The first application is done by the health worker who conducts a delivery. Then the following day, we distribute the CHX to the women and give a health education on how to apply. Tezra says, in spite of the traditions in this region, communities are now adapting the new method. There has been no resistance on CHX. So it was received and it's still being received and is taken positively by the women. We do not have any negative challenge or negative um, acceptance by the community. It could only be a challenge if the financial part could be there. It is free. If there was any cost implication, the community cannot take it. Data from Kenya Demographic Health Survey shows that at least one in every 45 children born in Kenya dies before reaching the 50th birthday. The level of under 5 mortality is 22 deaths per 1,000 births. David Gidinji, who is a medical project officer at Save the Children organization, says sepsis or infections are a major cause of newborn deaths in the first two weeks of life. You realize that uh, after delivery, the umbilical cord now is of no use and it is usually cut uh, immediately in the health facility by the healthcare provider. We have to take care of the cord because that's where most of the infections get in through in a newborn. We have been having so many cases of neonatal sepsis through the umbilical cord, and when chlorhexidine was introduced, it has shown that it, it reduces the umbilical cord infection by around 68%. Apart from Kenya, countries like Uganda, Tanzania, Burundi, Rwanda have also started embracing this new method of cord care for newborn babies. Save the Children, an organization which has been championing this new initiative in partnership with the government of Kenya, says 30,000 children have benefited from this treatment in western Kenya. Kedinji says plans are underway to roll out the program countrywide within the next five years. After piloting in Bugoma and Busia counties, it was shown to be very effective and we were able to now to scale up to other counties. Currently we are scaling up to 18 counties. And this we do with support from the national government. We don't uh, implement that alone. 
and by doing that the chlorhexidine indicators have also been included in the Kenya uh, health information system where now counties are able to report the consumption of chlorhexidine in the whole country. Now communities they have already accepted the use of chlorhexidine and we have really, uh, seen that neonatal sepsis has reduced even at the community level. As this new intervention continues to help thousands of babies in Kenya, experts are now calling on African governments to embrace the initiative to curb neonatal sepsis cases in the continent. Reporting for RFI's African Calling, this is Victor Muturi in Ibusia County, the border between Kenya and Uganda. We're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Alison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Alison. What song do you have for us? Hi, Laurangelo. I've picked the band Jupiter and Oquest this week. The lead singer Jupiter is from DRC, although... He's a bit of a citizen of the world. He grew up in East Berlin, so he's got lots of different attitudes coming to his music, uh, including punk, uh, lots of electric guitar uh, that he uses on, on more traditional Congolese rhythms. I've chosen a song from his latest album, Nakozonga, which I would strongly recommend. It's really super varied. And this song is called Bakunda Ulu, and he sings in the Kimongo language. It's a song about a turtle and it's about resilience. It's inspired by traditional fable. Basically, someone is beating a turtle in a very brutal way, but no matter how hard you hit, it'll end up hurting the hand of the person that is doing the damage more than the person who's being hit. Uh, and the turtle will carry on moving unharmed. So it's a very strong message about facing up to adversity. Um, and I think, you know, listening to some of those amazing fishermen and women in your report, while well, this is a song you can carry with you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for listening to today's episode, season two, episode three of Africa Calling. We'll leave you with the fabulous sounds of Jupiter and Aquas. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. This episode was edited and recorded by Nicolas Doho and Owan Rome. Goodbye for now. Balanga katuki mabau mau mau wau lio. Balanga katuki mabau tika la dinde tekeke angwondae. Balanga katuki mabau mau mau wau lio. Balanga katuki mabau tika la dinde tekeke angwondae. Bao, mao, bao, wao, lio. Balanga, kato, kima, bao, mao, bao, wao, lio. Balanga, kato, kima, bao, tika, lagi, nete, kere, kea, ngondae. Bakuna, hulu.